Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. In today's episode, a Superscribe special, we hear from Peaky Blinders' Stephen Knight about his new BBC drama This Town and why AI is a tiger that needs to be tamed. Harlan Coben on his latest Netflix thriller Fool Me Once and why he still suffers from imposter syndrome. And Chris Brancato traces the lines between Narcos, Godfather of Harlem and Hotel Cocaine for MGM+. Stephen Knight is among the UK's most celebrated screenwriters, with credits including Peaky Blinders, SAS Rogue Heroes, Taboo, and now new BBC drama This Town, an homage to the scar and two-tone music scene of the 1980s that was the backdrop to his youth. Set in Birmingham and Coventry, in some of the same streets as Peaky, the six-part series will debut on BBC One later this year, co-produced by Knight's own company, Nebula Star, together with Banerjee's Kudos and Universal Music Group's Mercury Studios. Knight spoke with me about the show, other projects he's involved with, including a new Star Wars movie and FX Hulu thriller The Veil, plus the significance of last year's US writers' strike, why AI is a tiger that needs to be tamed, and why, while we may have witnessed peak TV, peaky TV is still very much alive. A writer of many series and uh, an increasing volume of series. Uh, it's hard to keep track of them all, quite frankly. But um, tell us about the, uh, the latest show um, that you've got coming up. Uh, this Town is a series set in Birmingham and Coventry. Um, it's set in 1981 and it's a subject that's very close to my heart. Uh, I was around at the time when um, a particular kind of music, Scar and Two-Tone, became... Um, popular. It's not really about the music, it's about four people whose lives are affected by the music. And what I didn't want to do was write something where four people get together and say, okay, we're going to form a band. It's about four people whose lives are such that they have no choice but to form a band. So that, that was the idea. And you say it's very close to your heart, obviously Peaky Blinders as well, very close to your heart too. Um, you know, talk us through that kind of uh, transition, I suppose, from the series which has taken up a big chunk of your life to, yeah. to this new one. I mean, Peaky was uh, a series that's uh, an elaboration on stories told to me by my parents and uncles and aunties about life in Birmingham when they were kids in the 20s and 30s. And I suppose this town would be the stories I will tell to my kids. So it's passing that on to another generation in the same place, in the same street. So we shot it in Digbeth and, and uh, around Small Heath and in Coventry. So the geographical location is the same, but we've moved forward all of these years. And it's sort of um, stories that revolve around things that I experienced and knew about when I was, um, you know, early 20s. Um, late teens and I suppose it is the natural descendant of Peaky Blinders. And you had a very clear vision about the the arc of Peaky Blinders from from start to finish. Is it a sort of a similar story with this town? Um, yeah I, I would love to pretend that I had a very clear view of how Peaky would go. I never really did. I mean I never really believed that it would be what it became. I didn't really legislate for it to go beyond three series, and it did, which is great. And similarly with um, this town, I don't tend to start knowing how it finishes. So 
this has begun, um, the first series is done. I know it's going to continue, I know it's going to carry on. But I prefer the mystery of not knowing where it's going. You've told me before when we spoke, you like sort of, I think there was a, was it at the end of season three perhaps of Peaky Blinders? I remember you talking about writing yourself into a corner yes. and, uh, you know, not knowing how things would, would, would play out again. You know, is it the same approach? Are you Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there is a more efficient way of doing what I do. Um, but I tend to start and just go and sometimes find myself in a plot situation where I don't know how to get out of it. But I do think that that causes you to um, explore possibilities that you wouldn't rationally explore. And so you find ways out that, um, that, that are unexpected. I mean, I always think that if I don't know what's going to happen, the audience won't know what's going to happen. You say there are more efficient ways to do what you do, and yet the volume of work that you produce suggests that you are incredibly efficient. I mean, um, you know, just, just talk about some of the other projects that you've, you've got going on and some of the, the sort of the recent releases as well. I mean, or, or, or just talk ahead, if you like, to, uh, uh, to The Veil, A Thousand Blows as well. Star Wars, I'm not sure if you're allowed to talk about that. I, mean, I, I can't talk about Star Wars specifically, but that's something that I'm doing at the moment. Um, which is a different thing, which is much more, um, you know, you're part of a system, you're part of a world, and you have to respect the world that you're in and you can't reinvent the wheel, you know. Um, the other stuff that I'm doing, that I'm doing quite a bit of television, we're just finishing a film in Budapest at the moment with um, Pablo Loren and Angelina Jolie, which is the story of Maria Callas, which is completely random and different, and that's a movie. Um, and... The Veil is done and is uh, being cut together. The, the last three episodes are being cut together at the moment. Um, and it is, it's a very broad spectrum of stuff. Um, but what I've found with myself is that um, the best way for me to do what I do is to just sit down at a keyboard and start and do and write and see what happens. And that is, when I say it's not efficient, it's, it's efficient in terms of time. It might not be efficient in terms of how the story goes, but the only way I can do it is, is and I've said this before in interviews, it's, for me, it's a, it's a lot like dreaming. In other words, you, you cut everything else out and you don't have any um, external sort of influence and you sit at the keyboard and you just let it happen and it's a bit like having a dream. And then you look back and you think, that's a weird dream. Um, and I think that's why it's possible for me to do lots of different things is because you just let it go, let it happen, rather than spend a lot of time working out where you're gonna go with it, what's the, you know, what's the arc, what are the character arcs and all of that stuff. I tend not to do that. And I think that there is a more efficient way of doing it in terms of all of that, but the way I do it is just to do it. Um, looking back on 2023, it was a tumultuous year for, for writers in the US and, yeah. and the ripple effects of it um, were felt around the world as well. Um, you know, to what extent was the, the writer's strike, uh, you know, something you were involved in that, that it impacted what you, what you were doing and, um, you know, the concerns that were raised, um, how close to your heart are they? Yeah, I mean, you know, writers, um it's an individual exercise sometimes, it's a collective exercise sometimes, but I think 
when it comes to this sort of thing. It, it's, it's way beyond what I know about. It's beyond my expertise. But when it comes to collective bargaining, as it used to be called, you know, you, people have to, there's no point unless people stick together. It won't work. Um, and I think, I hope that writers did stick together um, during the strike. You know, I take seriously the responsibilities of what you can and can't do. Um, and I hope that the outcome is a happy one for, for writers and that, um, as I say, you know, writers are strange people. They're different people. They're, they're alone. They work alone. They sometimes come together. But when it comes to this, it's great that writers do have a kind of solidarity that works. What about the issues at the heart of this strike? I mean, well, one particular issue, AI, is that something that you think about? That, that you know, if we think to the sort of the future, obviously you, you've got a very well-established career and, uh, you know, some incredible work behind you, but for, for writers starting out, I mean, uh, that's a concern, right? AI is, is a, a potential threat. I mean, not just writers. I think any human being on Earth who doesn't think about AI at the moment is burying their head in the sand. It's big, you know. It's 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 like the industrial revolution. It's like the start of the internet. Probably even bigger. But um, what can we do? I suppose you have to ask yourself, and you you have to not be afraid of it. I suppose, and you have to hope that human beings will control it in a collectively responsible way. Probably human beings don't normally do that. Um, but here we are confronted with this thing, this tiger, and we have to find a way of taming it. Um, and in the end, I'm an optimist always, and in the end, human beings usually find a way to take these big developments and ultimately make them a good thing. So one hopes that it will be controlled, it will be contained, and it will become a tool rather than something that controls us. Uh, you talk about optimism, 2023 was obviously a very hard time for, for a lot of people. Yeah. We have seen a contraction uh, across the scripted market and unscripted too. Uh, budgets have come down. Um, you know, what's your sort of sense looking ahead to, to 2024 of, of how that's going to play out yeah. um, and, and, you know, what that means for your own shows and, and more broadly for, for the business? Um, I, I mean, I've got no... Um previous knowledge or inside knowledge of how things will turn out as a consequence of doing what I do, because I do what I do. Um, one would suspect that, it's always felt as if there's this thing, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it'll burst and it'll come down. Um, lower budgets are a bad thing and a good thing, as far as I'm concerned, sometimes. So that if you can't blow things up, you have to talk about blowing things up, and sometimes that's better. Um, I think budgets, well, here's what I think, to be honest, is that certain things will get bigger budgets and smaller budgets, things will go away. That's not necessarily a good thing, but then as writers and artists, what people have to do is if they don't have the budget, just you have to find a way and do the creative stuff. And, and the best stuff usually doesn't come from the bigger budget things necessarily. So. It's almost like everything changes, everything stays the same. And we're following a pattern that has been followed for a long, long time where um, if you are a writer, you have to believe in yourself and find a way of making whatever that thing is in your head, getting it onto a screen in some way that either 
you attract a big budget, great, but then that has its problems. Or you find a way of doing it in a small way with your mates. And sometimes that's really good. Final question. People have talked about peak TV, the bubble bursting of, of, of peak TV. However, there are sort of, you know, uh, plenty of new avenues for content. You've got all these fast channels springing up. I know it's not your, your thing necessarily, but Peaky Blinders isn't finished by any means, you know, in terms of its sort of yeah. franchise extension yeah, and wonder, I'm, I'm wondering if it might be the end of peak TV, but the beginning of peaky TV, is that uh, something? I, I, I think there are, I mean, what I'm interested in is, is um, you know, you make something, you create something and there's a world. So for example, peaky, it's a TV show, it's going to be a film and it's also a ballet. You know, who would have thought it? And it's really successful. It's done really well and it sells out. And what you've got is this world where people get the character, they get the sensibility, and they're prepared to see it in lots of different artistic forms. So it's dance, contemporary dance, telling the story of Peaky. Now, if you can tell the story of 1920s Birmingham gangsters through ballet, then lots of things are possible. So I just think that... Um, creative people have to create these worlds or these, it's franchise is the wrong word, but create these characters and, and, and these relationships and find out where they can exist in other forms. And it's exciting, you know, it's, it's always exciting, whether it's, whether it's um, expansion or contraction, there's always excitement to be had. I'm, I'm a big believer in just try and do it. U.S. author Harlan Coben has written 35 best-selling novels and created a dozen television series based on both original ideas and his books, with his latest TV drama Fool Me Once having debuted on Netflix on New Year's Day. The series, based on the book of the same name, is about an ex-army captain who watches a baby monitor in disbelief as her former husband seemingly plays with their two-year-old daughter two weeks after he was supposedly murdered. Fool Me Once follows on from previous Netflix UK Coburn commissions for Safe, The Stranger and Stay Close and is the author's fifth collaboration with screenwriter Danny Brocklehurst and exec producers Nicola Schindler and Richard Fee from Key Street Productions. Coburn spoke with Michael Picard about the show, his creative partnerships, why he still suffers from imposter syndrome and the art of keeping viewers on the edge of their seats. How do you feel about four or five shows you've done now with the with the team? Yeah. How how are you feeling about this one? I feel great. You know, it's it's hard. I never. Um, I, I think part of being a writer is having imposter syndrome, and mm -hmm. I still, <laughs> after thirty four books and I don't know, eight shows on Netflix, uh, maybe fourteen shows overall. I don't even know. Um, that never goes away. Mm -hmm. So you know, today we were watching the show with everybody, and I'm still sitting there. I got my hand on my head, like rubbing my <laughs> head and afraid to look. And I'm still thinking of things maybe I should have done differently or I should have changed or whatever. So it's hard for me to be confident. That said, um, the way you, the, the reaction uh, for Fool Me Once I think has been the strongest for any of the series okay. um, that we've done so far. So I'm looking forward to having everybody watch it. Why Why do you think that is? I, get it, I don't know. I mean, maybe we're getting a little better at this. <laughs> uh, we have a really, you know, we've always had great casts. I think this one maybe is a little special with, you know, Michelle Keegan uh, in one of a major starring role for her to break out, I think, role for her. 
you know, having Joanna Lumley, mm -hmm. um, which is like having royalty. Uh, Richard Armitage back again. Um, Adil Akhtar has long been one of my favorite actors. I've wanted to work with him for a long time, so um, I'm excited about that. Um, I think, you know, hopefully you get better at some of these things, mm -hmm. and, and maybe we are getting better at it. Yeah. Is there, I guess, a formula now, for want of a better phrase, or a, a way that you do take these projects on and develop them through production? Well, they're equally painful, and every time <laughs> I think we found a way, we end up not using that way. I think also the team, in the uh, I call it the core four, um, myself and Danny mm -hmm. Brocklehurst, who spoke to Nic Nicholas Schindler, yeah. and Richard Fee, who I always call the unsung hero, um, and I think we have, one of the things is we have even more confidence in each other. Um, it's rare, I've written a lot of shows in other countries and other places and other people, but it's rare to have a team that you really trust, that you really know you, it's a corny phrase, but share a vision with, and that we're all sort of after the same thing. So I think we're able to read each other a little better. Danny and I have worked together a lot. We know each other's strengths and weaknesses even more, so we can fill in those gaps maybe a little better. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're always just, we're, you're always trying to get better at what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. and so, I mean, your, your name's above the title, it's, it's based on your book. I mean, how would you describe your role on a show like this? Danny's the head writer, obviously Nicola and Richard are uh, exec producing it and, and putting it together. Where, where do you start and how does your role extend across the show? I mean, I, I basically do all of it in terms <laughs> of working with them. So I, I, we all do the auditions together, watch the auditions together, we all do the casting together, we've all made suggestions for who we've wanted, um, we've all spoken to the actors. And in terms of the writing, um, Danny and I, you know, and Richard also were outlining it. So it's very much a, a together group. Danny's best bits are to do the actual sort of screenplayish aspects. My, the bits that I'm probably stronger at are the story bits, making sure that the story is landing, making sure we're putting it in the right order, making sure you know that sort of a thing. So you know if if you were to, and we can't because we so overlap now, where I'm doing this and he's doing that. But he's more the like if you were doing it like story by teleplay by kind of a thing. Um, and I just think that we've gotten to know each other's uh, minds pretty well. And I'll say, you know, uh, we need to make sure this is more like Danny and you know, makes it more like we have the suspense that Harlan wants. You know, so it just all works together. Mm -hmm. And was there a particular reason you chose For Me Once as your next project? So obviously you've done a few. You've got lots of books to choose from and original stuff part as well. Of, well. Part of it was the rights we didn't have for a while, but Nicholas, <laughs> Nicholas always pushed me to do this one. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't sure. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I thought, you know, I, I kind of went in order. I thought The Stranger would be a, a really good one to do. And um, uh, But Nicola, Nicholas, this is one of Nicholas' favorites, maybe because it's a female lead well, stay close to this too, in a sense, but it really was a, a, a very much it's driven by Michelle's character. Um, but, you know, it's just, we're doing them all, so <laughs> it's just sort of time. And, and the books are a little bit like your children. They all sort of drive you a little bit nuts. Uh, so I've always loved this one. It, it, was, it was taken for a while to be made into a movie. Didn't happen. Um, and so when we got the rights back, I think... Um, uh, and then with Netflix, also the question for me always is, um, because I do other countries as well, which country is going to kind of get it? 
And so Nicola really uh, thought that this would be a great next step for us, and I think she was right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what can you tell us about just the way the book's been adapted then? It's moved from New Jersey to Manchester, the Manchester area. What else can you tell us about for people who have read the book? Well, I think that, you know, uh, my own philosophy is is that um, a novel's a novel's a TV show's a TV show, as I mentioned a little bit earlier when we were talking. Um, I think the worst adaptations are the ones that's, that really worry that they're not being true to the novel, that they have to stay slavishly devoted to the novel. Novels are more interior. Novels, uh, something that works well in a novel may not work well for TV and vice versa. So I, when I do an adaptation, my thought is what's going to make it the best TV series if it keeps close to the book or not. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've found is by changing the locations, maybe it's just me, but it makes it fresher for me. It makes it a hybrid. So I think why the, these particular shows have worked so well for Netflix is it's sort of the hybrid. There's the, you know, when people watch it, you can see the American DNA sort of thinking and you can see the British DNA. Mm -hmm. And I think that that combination has worked really, really well for us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and um, I mean, it's very much uh, Maya's story, isn't it? It's, it's yes. her perspective in the book, and we follow her, Michelle Keegan's character, through the story. I mean, how would you describe her as a protagonist, and, and how do we follow her through the series? That, well, that's one of the things that is different. I mean, if you if you watch, say, The Stranger or Safe, there's mm -hmm. three or four families going through various issues that kind of come together. Stay close to, you had, you know, Kush Jumbo's story, you had Richard Armitage's story, you had James, James Nesbitt's story. Here it's it's really driven. It's one story. Michelle, you know, her husband Joe and her mother-in-law Judith. Um, and so, you know, Michelle, I think had to had to do more than any actor I've ever had on a show had to do. She really had to carry the load, and she was a delight uh, uh, and delivered from beginning to end. I did, you know, I knew Michelle's work a bit from Danny and some of the others, um, but but. Um, I was just, you know, the first few days, I was nervous. If, how could she handle this role? This is a big step up. And I, 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 I think the world, I think the country's gonna be really surprised at how good she really is in this and how it's a tough role because you have to be, you know, you're, you're a tough combat helicopter pilot and, you know, you, you've lost your husband, you're on your own. And I didn't want her to betray any of that to be sort of the, I don't know, to be the stereotypical mother which she's not in this. So all these different things that she has to go through um, as an actress, and she's also funny in it. I mean, a lot of it was sort of like the way she rolls her eyes and has these little asides um, that I think really work for her. And she's a terrific, a terrific actress. I couldn't be more pleased with her. I mean, is, is there a difference you've seen through writing a book where you can just focus on her character through a TV series where You've got eight episodes, eight hours of TV to fill, and you've obviously got to bring in more characters and, and flesh them out so they're not just sort of paper characters turning up and, and leaving again. How do you balance that across the series? When I write a story or write a show, even if you don't see it, I thought of every character as the star. And I ask myself when I cast somebody, could I make a show just with this character as the stories about this character and this actress actor playing the lead? And so even, you know, Richard Armitage's Joe or, or Joanna Lumley's Judith or Emmett Scanlon's Shane, I know enough about those people in my head and I know enough about those actors that I could just make a show called the Emmett Scanlon's show or whatever. 
Um, and in this case, the real one that we did that with was Adil Akhtar. So um, Adil's role in the book, Kirsten's role in the book, is pretty much straight cop. Um, and so now Adil has a whole side plot involving him getting married and having uh, uh, health issues, um, crashing car in the first episode, that are going to dovetail into Maya's story and really develop in a, in a, I think, in a really interesting way. So there's a character that was not really the same in the book. And that was my decision and, and my doing. I wanted this other story. And when you have an actor like Abdil Akhtar, and any of these actors, you want to give them more. It's one of the fun things about um, casting really great actors and actresses. You know, you do your sort of first draft, and then I sort of tailor it to like, my God, I have Joanna Lumley doing this role. I have Abdil Akhtar. I have to make sure that I'm giving them lines that I'm proud for them to deliver. Mm -hmm. And and so when you're saying that, giving them lines, how involved in the the writing are you? Are you using, writing scripts and yeah, things? I don't actually. I'm not the the, the person who does the first draft, but mm -hmm. I rewrite them all. Okay. With, you know, with the team, we rewrite all the all. We go through them all. Um, the actors. I, I'm also very collaborative. Maybe because I'm such a dictator in books, <laughs> I like being collaborative. So if you know uh, Richard, for example, likes to. This is the third time we've worked together. He likes to actually make a character sketch beforehand, and he'll write me the. And you know the rest of the team a long email about what he thinks his character is, and we'll sit down and we'll discuss that. And I never want an actor to say a line they just don't think is working. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want you know, and, uh, if I can make them comfortable with it, and if I insist on it, that's one thing. But for the most part, if they have an issue with a line, um, I want them to come to me because it's not going to be delivered right. Um, so all of this, it's, it's a very um, collaborative, cooperative sort of situation, and every once in a while I have story ideas too. Now, I'm not saying I take them all, but I do like to listen to them all. And um, it's very, I think it's important, a lot of TV writers, um, again, maybe because I've already written as a novel, so I have le I, I can relax a little more. They're very worried that, oh my God, you know, this is my vision, my words, it has to be purity, you know, my, my thing. And that's really not the case at all. In the same way, I'll give them notes if I don't if I think they're not acting right on that particular scene. Or I'm like, you know, try it this way. That's that's part of the, you know, part of what makes the experience. Um, it's more team like. Mm -hmm. The comparison I, I often use is like when I write a novel, I feel like I'm a tennis or golfer, right? I, I won Wimbledon, I won the Masters. I'm alone. I get the trophy. Blah blah blah. When I do it with these people, I feel like I'm captain of a World Cup team. Mm -hmm. I don't care who scores. <laughs> I don't care how we do it. I want to win and I want to celebrate as a team with all of us and we're all here to help each other out. Yeah. Does that include working close with the directors perhaps when, you know, what kind of relationship do you have with them? Well, you know, that's it, it. So I'm with them all the time. We talk quite frequently. I come over for the, um, they call the table read. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be, they'll show me photos of the sets and, the, and places we want to film at. And, you know, I'll yay or nay them, and we'll do it. But we do it as a team. Mm -hmm. I don't like to think I'm saying, no, yes, no. It's we do it as a team. They, we discuss. We've already discussed it a lot, mm -hmm. um, where it's going to be. What, uh, you know, we, we want the house to have a certain look. We want it in this case, for example, um, Joe and Maya's house is this kind of gorgeous, modern, but kind of cold and bricky sort of feeling. It was almost prison-like. And so these are things we discuss. They don't, they don't happen quickly. And then we'll look at five or six or seven houses, and we'll, we'll, we'll choose. And so all of those decisions on everything, on wardrobe, they send me in the morning sometimes pictures of the hair style. We were joking before, but they will. They'll send me hairstyles or, or whatever, and we'll go through that. 
much as we can. Yeah. And, and having done this a few times already now, what lessons perhaps have you learned from those previous experiences you've brought onto this show or are taking through to the next one? I think I'm just faster in being able to make the decision or being able to, to see it. Because it is hard for me when I've written the scene, I see it so specifically, I have to let go of that. Mm. And sometimes what they'll come up with will be actually better than what I had hoped, which is really when I think the show's starting to rock. Mm -hmm. Great, and I mean, just in terms of the TV business as a whole, coming as a novelist into TV, I mean, what are your, what have been your observations about the industry, particularly now as things seem to be slowing down a little bit in, in the drama world and, and people are you know, tightening their budgets a little bit maybe, yeah. how are you seeing you know, the industry at the moment? Look, you know, both novel writing and TV, it's hard to get something made. I mean, uh, you know, a few years ago, people were like, oh, it's, it's easy. It's never easy. It's never been easy to get a show greenlit. I mean, it's just, it's so much money and it's so hard. And I'm, I know how lucky that we have been and we're, and we're greatly appreciative. But I've always, my attitude has always been, it's got to be better than I, than, than, this has to be the best I've ever done. This has to be better. I'm extraordinarily driven to tell a better story every time. I'm not, you know, necessarily driven by money or fame or any of that, but I am driven that, you know, if you watched, if you, if you watch Stay Close straight through, I want you to watch this one straight through even more. You know, I want, I want to make sure that I'm gripping you in, 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 in new ways. So I've always, the pressure for me has always been self-induced. So whatever external pressures, in my case, I've always tried to, I try to ignore the markets. I try to almost be like a child where I'm sticking my fingers in my ears, going la, 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 I can't hear you, and just writing the best story I can. Because I know if I write the best story I can, is that gives me my best chance. If I worry, you know, first of all, you know, whatever is in right now won't be in by the time you write your thing. So, um, okay, so, medical thrillers are in. People want medical thrillers. Well, by the time you'd write one, it's nine months, it's six months, and then it's not going to be in, and, if, and your heart's not in it anyway. So I try to write what I think is going to be the best, most compelling story in the world, and I don't worry that right now people are looking for conspiracy thrillers or this kind of thriller or that kind of thriller, because that never works out for a creative. It just, I've never seen a case where it does work, um, but most time when you try to chase a market, it's a mistake. Um, chase your heart. You know, I chase people's hearts, not the dollars. I don't. So, and I don't advise. I don't advise chasing a market because you know you'll see something is working. Go, oh, you know, I'll do. It. I can even tell you, like with Netflix, there was projects of mine that when I first started with them, they had no interest in. They just said, this is not what we do. And now those are the priorities, just because things change. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't change it to make it that way. I just waited, and eventually came around. Mm -hmm. And is there a secret to your brand of storytelling? You know, you talk about wanting to keep viewers, uh, readers up all night, and and probably the same with viewers. I mean, how do you how do you hook them in and and perhaps keep them keep these stories rooted in a certain level of reality while also pushing the limits of of how far you can tell a story? Yeah, the British ones I think are a little bonkers. Like, <laughs> it depends. Like in the Spanish one that we did, The, the Innocent, um, and I'd say one of the Polish ones at least. They're very grounded, you know, uh, or, and you know, some of them were more violent or graphic, and some of them, you know, the British ones are kind of fun bonkers, and you just kind of kind of let go and take the ride. But I think there's three things. Um, one is you want that great opening hook. So when I describe the story to people and I say there's a married couple, the husband's murdered, the wife has a nanny cam so she can watch her daughter, and one day she checks the nanny cam, and she sees a man pick up her child and turns around to the camera, and, oh, my God, it's her dead husband. You're hooked. You know, you have a hook. 
Then I have to know, land the ending. That's the hardest thing, I think, for most of these shows. I knew the ending before I started. And I think this one, in case of Fool Me Once, is our most shocking ending, our most surprising ending. And the third thing is, which involves this ending, is you have to, it has to have the emotional resonance. I can twist and turn as much as I want, but you're not going to follow it or care if you don't care about the characters, if you don't care about Maya, if you don't care about Joe, if you don't care about Judy, if you don't care about these characters and what's happening, especially Maya in this case, um, the story's not going to work. So those are the things I think that probably make it work. Chris Brancato is a prolific US screenwriter with credits including X-Files, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Hannibal and Beverly Hills 90210. He co-created Netflix's Narcos and MGM Plus's Godfather of Harlem, which was recently renewed for a fourth season. He's also behind new MGM Plus series Hotel Cocaine, a Danny Pino and Michael Chiklis starring drama set in the Miami cocaine scene of the late 1970s and early 80s, which is due to hit the Amazon-owned streamer later this year. Brancato spoke to me about the show, the connective tissue that runs between it, Narcos and Godfather of Harlem, the significance of last year's US writers' strike, and how he sees the market shaking out in 2024. Well, early in my career, very early, I'm dating myself. I worked on Beverly Hills 90210, which is still the favorite show for my female cousins. Uh, I did uh, The X-Files as well, um, just as a baby writer, and, um, and then had uh, about 20 years of failures uh, until Narcos came along, and uh, Narcos was uh, shot in Colombia. I worked on the Pablo Escobar portion, and uh, in particular, and from there went on to uh, create or co-create Godfather of Harlem, uh, which uh, has been a wonderful experience. We're about to start shooting the fourth season and, uh, and, and also have a new show, Hotel Cocaine, that'll be premiering in the first half of 2024. Tell us about that show. That show was uh, occasioned by an actor on Narcos who came to me and said, you know, my father was the general manager of the Mutiny Hotel in Miami in the late 70s, and I had did no idea what he was talking about. And he said, it was essentially Casablanca, like Humphrey Bogart in World War II, but it was the Casablanca on cocaine, because the backdrop was not World War II, as in the original Casablanca, it was sort of the war on drugs that was going on. So I said to him, that sounds very interesting. Why don't you write something up about it? And, and, and that's a perfect way to dissuade anybody from, um, you know, they never actually do write anything about it. So it was a way of, of um, distancing myself from an idea that I wasn't sure would work. Sure enough, five years later, he sent me a little document about his father. And all of a sudden, I started to see what, the, what was interesting about this series, which was this notion of a time in the late 70s where the cocaine was not yet viewed as the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the downside of cocaine use was not, was not quite apparent to people. So there was a, a kind of frothy excitement about the use of it. And in particular, this hotel was, was uh, just a, a pleasure palace of sorts. And I had the idea of taking the true history of his father and fictionalizing it to create a crime show that would also show the underbelly of the cocaine trade, 
the fact that for the pleasure on this side, there was a lot of pain on the other side. And for me, that's always an interesting dynamic to play. So I think the show uh, depicts an era that's long past. We have the music of the, of the time, both uh, Latin and uh, uh, the disco era, and wonderful actors portraying uh, various characters. The central premise is that the general manager, Roman Compte, is tasked by the DEA to spy on his older brother, who's Miami's biggest cocaine dealer. And at risk is his daughter, uh, who the DEA says, we're gonna separate you from your daughter because you, uh, you work in a place where cocaine is openly used and sold. So he's caught between a rock and a hard place. And he has to cozy up to his estranged brother. He hasn't dealt with him in years since his, since his brother became a cocaine dealer. And, and then face the difficulty of having to try to spy on and ultimately turn in a family member who you love. So that, that's the central premise of the show. And can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the production of it, the shooting, and uh, um, you know, bringing that, that vision that you had to, uh, to screen? Well, the production of the show was always going to be a little bit difficult in the sense that Miami of today doesn't look anything like Miami of 1978. So we scouted the world. We went to Colombia, we went to uh, Puerto Rico, uh, and then ultimately the Dominican Republic, which interestingly enough has the kind of architecture and uh, beachfront that quite closely resembles Miami of the late 70s. So we shoot in the Dominican Republic. We have a, a crew and a cast that comes from all over the world. It's, it's very, very exciting. Um, uh, amazing technicians from, from uh, Latin America, the US, and uh, uh, Guillermo Navarro is our director producer. He's uh, won an Oscar for Pan's Labyrinth as the director of photography. And he directs many of the episodes. And so we, we found a, a home there, and, uh, and we're, we're happy to be there. And um, you referenced the fact of, you know, how this project kind of, you know, its early gestation, the, the connection with the work that you've done on Narcos. You also talked about the, the sort of conflicts that kind of interest you as a writer as well. But, you know, if you were to sort of trace a, a, an arc or, or a thread, particularly through, through Narcos and Godfather of Harlem up to this point, you know, what, what would you say that is or how would you characterize that? Well, if I had to find a common theme in my work, it often has to do with the drug world and the crime world. Uh, that's partially because I'm interested in watching those shows. I think viewers like to look at things that they're not, not a participant of. Some, you know, in other words, the, the, the violence and the danger of those worlds are, make for exciting television. Um, <clears throat> Narcos was a very interesting experience for me because we based that on quite a bit of historical fact, which is Pablo Escobar's rise as a drug baron and the DEA's efforts to go down to Latin America and try to shut him down along with the Colombian military and police force. Um, I was surprised in uh, not only that the show um, seemed to grab a, an audience and grab attention, but also that people were rooting for Pablo Escobar more so than I thought they would. Some of that had to do with the charisma of Wagner Mora, the actor playing Escobar. 
but I think also people sometimes like to root for villains. And I'm always uh, cognizant of the fact that I don't want my shows to be advertisements for drug use. Um, I like to uh, live in that world because it's interesting and exciting to write, but I also like to show that there's a, there's a true dark side to it. You know, Escobar ended up dead on a rooftop. Uh, in fact, when we went down to do Narcos, we met with uh, President Santos, and some of the people in his cabinet were, were unhappy with the idea that Netflix was shooting a show in Colombia about the drug trade. They, wanted, they did not want that to be their worldwide reputation. And Santos said, look, I'm going to allow this to shoot here, but I, I hope you'll depict what happened to the people who were engaged in that trade, which is to say they ended up in jail or dead, most of them. So I've taken that responsibility seriously. In Godfather of Harlem, Forrest Whitaker plays a man who's a heroin dealer and who is a multifaceted individual. He was a, a, a writer, a philosopher of sorts, a, a philanthropist, and also a drug dealer and a violent man. And in that show, we see over the course of time the effect that that has on his soul and on his relationships. Uh, Hotel Cocaine similarly uh, depicts on the one hand the glossy, vibrant, frizzy fun of uh, an era long gone, the colorful clothes, the sexual revolution, uh, and at the same time we watch the underbelly, the, the, the violence associated with that trade, and the fact that for you know, the gram of cocaine someone does in a party atmosphere, there's a long trail of dead bodies leading back to South America. Narcos was a, a, a breakthrough show in terms of putting Latin America on the international TV stage, but why do you think it is that we haven't really seen any other series make the same kind of impact since then? Uh, there was a term that, that was described after Narcos came out that television could be global, meaning global and local at the same time. When, when we went to do Narcos, it was one of the first shows that originated in North America that was shooting in Colombia on the ground. So, so most American shows and most American broadcasters never wanted a show set in a foreign country. They wanted it set in the U.S. And so I think that that was a, a difference for viewers, that suddenly you had a show that had the production value of a typical U, uh, U.S. show, which is to say high budget, and yet also was on the ground in a location that most people had never seen or been to. Um, I, I think, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I can explain why there haven't been similar um, shows that perhaps had that, that reach. Um, I will say this, that in many countries I see now producing television on perhaps much smaller budgets, we're seeing incredibly good work. So that, so that half of my viewing these days is shows that are produced outside of the U.S., that are, that are excellently produced and written. And so, you know, I, I speak at panels in different countries, and I'm always trying to encourage people to, you know, study the... Um, fundamentals of television writing uh, that, that to encourage the fact that uh, there's a perception that the director is the, is the arbiter of taste. And that's usually true in a two-hour feature film. But in television, it's, it's the writing. 
That's what matters. That's what keeps people coming back episode after episode. So um, I think if you look around the Latin American landscape, you will find shows that, um, that, that, that are extremely good um, uh, and, and, that, and that benefit from the fact that the, the writing influence is, is clearly vivid. Um, a, a huge inspiration for me for Narcos was watching El Patron del Mal, which was produced in Colombia. And when I watched it, I thought to myself, this is, this is rather addictive. It's, it's almost like cocaine. It, it, it makes you want to keep watching. And so when we made Narcos, people, I had no idea that it would be successful or not. I, you never know. But I, I thought to myself, maybe it has a chance because El Patron del Mal did 66 episodes, most of which I watched, you know, one after another. And I thought, we're only making 10 episodes for this first season. Maybe it will have that same addictive quality. And it did. But obviously, writing about drugs is, is not representative of the Latin American experience at all. In fact, when I went down to Colombia to do Narcos, my knowledge of it was from the movie Scarface, where the Colombians came in and committed a gross act of violence. And so uh, going to live in Colombia told me something entirely different about the way the country is and the the gentility and beauty of the people and the experience I had there, the welcoming uh, uh, sense I had, and, and also the fact that Colombians didn't care about Americans at all. In other words, it was, I found it kind of amusing. You know, walk down there and, oh, they're all going to love the gringo. And it was just eh, another, another guy walking the street. So I think that the talent exists in every single country. I know that on Hotel Cocaine, the show I'm doing now, our actors come from Colombia. Mexico, Cuba, everywhere. And the, the, the strength and quality of that acting is, is terrific. And so hopefully what happens in various countries is the concentration and the education exists on the writing side of things. Because writing scripts is a, is a trade, it's a craft. You, you can learn how to do it. If you read my original scripts, you would, you'd say, this guy's never going to make it, you know, the first few I wrote. But you come to learn and develop. I think that in uh, Latin America, you're going to deal always with s smaller budgets because there's just a less smaller viewership compared to the 400 million people in the U.S. But, but budgets don't matter so much if the script is great. You know, the, the, if the story is great and compelling, um, I find that the, the budgets can be very low. So I'm not quite sure how to explain why there hasn't been a sizable global hit like Narcos. And there, there probably have. I just, not, none are coming to mind. But, uh, but I'm encouraged about the future of television creation in Latin America and in uh, Europe. And uh, as I say, half the shows I watch are from those countries now. 2023 was a, um, a tumultuous year in, in, in many ways, um, particularly from the point of view of, of writers. What were your views on the, on the writers' strike and, um, you know, the, the results of it and, um, you know, how disruptive and what impact do you, do you feel that's, that's kind of made, you know, beyond? Well, both the writers' and the actors' strikes, in my opinion, were, were fundamentally about... Um, redressing some of the inequities in the system, which is to say that 
uh, studios were, were, were penny-pinching in a way that I think was unfair to writers at the beginning of their careers and, uh, and, and, and actors as well. Uh, but in particular, the main issue, in my opinion, was the use of artificial intelligence to create scripts, to create likenesses of actors. We're not that far away from computers being able to take an actor's likeness and, and then generate a full performance with the actor not even involved. Um, we're not that far away from uh, computers being able to, at the very least, write you know, reasonably pedestrian scripts and maybe, maybe someday unique and original scripts. I, I, I'm not sure that's the case. I think the human element is always going to be essential. But for me, that was the primary thing to, to stake our, our flag in the ground and say, we cannot allow machines to write what is a, a, a human experience, the, the, the creation of a story that has living, breathing characters and, and so I think on many levels, and it's up for debate, but we were able to achieve the, the, the goal, which was to protect the human beings who act and write in shows from the advance of the machines. Yeah. So in some ways, James Cameron was very, very prescient with um, The Terminator. Absolutely. <laughs> That's taking it down a, a whole other level, which is not, not uh, impossible at all. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, just looking ahead, I guess, then to, to 2024 and the way that the uh, business is, is going to change. It's obviously been through huge transformations during your career and Narcos, I guess, starting, you know, you, you, you've gone from, from network television to, uh, uh, to streaming and, and Epix has, has now sort of morphed into MGM Plus as well, where, where Hotel Cocaine is, is, is going to be featuring as well. I mean... Um, those transformations, how much of that, you know, concerns you as a writer, really, or, or do you just sort of focus on the craft? Well, I've seen a lot of transitions in the business over the past 30 years, which, which begin with when I started, there were four channels uh, in the U.S., CBS, NBC, ABC, and Fox. And then came the advent of cable television. You saw HBO and FX and ch uh, channels that were able to do sort of darker material than the standard network fare, which was designed to be big tent to try to draw everybody in so that an episode of, um, you know, an Aaron Spelling show in the 80s might have 60 million viewers. Uh, uh, and so what we've seen is a fractionalization of the audience as channels have multiplied, first cable, and then, of course, um, eventually the streamers, uh, Netflix being the first sort of famous one in the game. And so uh, technology often drives changes to the filmed entertainment business. Uh, so you have to just expect that that's going to happen. Um, here in 2024, what we're going to see, I think, is uh, the fact that uh, the consumer's only going to be able to get so many bundles of streaming. In other words, you, you can't get every single channel. It's, it's too expensive uh, for most people. And so uh, there'll be a kind of further consolidation of, of studios and networks or broadcasters. Um, there will be less shows made now. 
sort of the fight for dominance in the streaming world is, is kind of playing itself out. You have Netflix, they were there first. You have Disney, which has the huge library and infrastructure to support streaming. And I think you'll see some of the other streamers. Uh, you, of course, have MGM+, Plus, which is the little engine that could, which has the vast MGM library and, uh, in my opinion, is, is creating very, very good shows. Uh, so, for me, one thing hasn't changed. You try to sit down and write a show that engages an audience. We have much more freedom now as writers to write shows that interest us. I was certainly interested in telling crime stories in the... Um, you know, in the 90s, the problem is that network television wasn't that interested in darker material. So that's, that's my taste. So now there's an allowance for virtually any type of show. Look at the euphoria and, you know, all the different things you see, uh, uh, Succession and Game of Thrones and I'm mentioning all HBO shows, but Billy the Kid on MGM and dare I say Godfather of Harlem. Um, so with that freedom is, is the opportunity to try to tell stories that fundamentally move and affect people. So that, that never really changes. That's, that's been a constant, even if you're working uh, on law and order, you know, you're, you're trying to do the best you can to make people feel something. So that's the constant. Um, nothing much has changed in my professional life. I, I get up, I spend eight to ten hours a day trying to figure out whether the story can work, how it's going to work, and then uh, sit with a team of writers and try to do the best scripts we can. So I, I think that'll never change. Um, and, you know, I expect now in 2024 to see a period of tightening, belt tightening, uh, as we come out of the COVID period where everybody was stuck at home, so there was huge viewership. Um, and, and then there'll be a time when it opens up again and there, there are more shows made. So I'm optimistic that uh, the viewers still want to just see great programming and that uh, we'll do our best to continue to provide it. Chris Brancato. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.